and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insight podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each fortnight we invite our listeners to take 10 and get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. And each fortnight I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Peter, the Chief Economist at QIC, and welcome, Matthew. Thanks, uh, Alison, and welcome back to Australia. Thank you. I am struggling with the jet lag, but we will push through. <laughs> Since the return from London, I've got to say it was a fantastic trip with the opportunity to meet you know, many terrific investors. And But you know, my observation from, from travelling through Europe was really the, the perfect storm that seems to be brewing over there. We've got just to list a few. We've got the war in Ukraine, which is obviously a humanitarian crisis, but has significant implications for economic and, um, and market growth. And that seems to be escalating further with conscription effectively starting in Russia. The related energy crisis, which is you know really impacting Europe related to that, the inflation rate um, partially impacted by energy, but of course, you know, other areas like food inflation and rental inflation are real. And on the last day in London, Liz Truss, who's the new UK PM, along with her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, announced a range of budgetary measures, which really took the market by a bit of a surprise. And they're really stimulatory, you know, really trying to have this idea of we will grow out of the problems, but that has sent the markets into a bit of a tailspin. And then Another recent one is just the recent elections in Italy. We've got, I think it was uh, Giorgia Maloney has been elected as the Italian Prime Minister and she's from a right-wing party and sort of, I guess, some associated you know, questions about what that might mean for, for Italian policies looking forward. So a real brewing pot of all sorts of things happening in, in Europe. And I think that leads to a, a pretty strong view that there's probably going to be a recession in Europe. But love to get your view, Matthew. Well, yes, uh, Alison. And I know in our chats um, that we've had just over the last couple of days since your return, you know, the, the mood in um, that you're picking up, the vibe in uh, Europe is, is, you know, is turning, you know, quite concerning. Our view about Europe is there is no doubt now that Europe will fall into recession. Now, interestingly, does it does it really matter? I remember my old boss, Doug McTaggart, a brilliant economist in his own right, one of the things he used to say was that, yeah, well, Europe doesn't really matter because it never contributes to growth, nor does it detract from growth. It always just chugs along at a you know, very low rate of growth. <laughs> but the, the problem is, though, that Europe does matter. It's big. You know, the 27 member states of the EU, for example, constitute the third biggest economy in the world. Uh, Alison, it's 15% of the global economy. Yeah. That's third after, as you know, the US at 24% and China at 18%. Mm. But it's also important, as you've been pointing out to me, from a, a global financial market position. So whether that recession is shallow or deep is really going to be the critical question that we're going to face going forward. We can see that playing out in financial markets now where, you know, the concern is that uh, outlook for uh, Europe is going to be quite bad. Now, there is an argument for a shallow recession, which seems to be the consensus view at the at the moment. And that argument goes something like this, Alison, that inflation is at the moment um, close to peaking. It's going to peak at around a little bit above 10% and then fall progressively over 2023 as energy price inflation falls. If that's the case, then the ECB rate rises will cap out around about 2.5%. And in this scenario, the damage could be limited to small quarterly declines in the European economy of around 0.3%, both this quarter and the first quarter of next year, with growth resuming in uh, the June quarter of next year. Now, of course, as you've just pointed out with that long litany of threats that are facing Europe, uh, a lot could go wrong and that could tip Europe into a deeper recession. 
very simple things that are out of our control, actually, Alison could do it. For example, if they have a cold winter with the shortage of gas that they've currently got, that could be enough, you know, causing blackouts, causing uh, shutdowns of economic activity. There could be more persistent inflation and concomitant higher interest rates, and that would be push enough to push over into a deeper recession, push the economy into a deeper recession. Or... Indeed, policy mistakes is the ones that you carry articulated that are, we're witnessing in the UK, for example. Yeah, look, I don't like to be a glass half empty, but it's hard to find a lot of sort of limits on the horizon that are, that are positive there. But I'd be really interested to dwell a little bit about the policy announcements made in the UK. Costings haven't been fully released, but estimates suggest that it's £140 billion that's going to be going into the UK economy as a result of these tax cuts and, and other measures to cap, say, energy prices for households and small businesses and so on, which is an extraordinarily large amount of money and of course you know markets are then worried about the issuance of bonds that will occur as a result into a time when we're trying to the central banks generally trying to to slow the economy to to mm. stop this inflation which is at around about the 10 percent so we saw an extraordinarily strong reaction from markets you know uh, uk 10-year bond yields raced up to four and a half percent and the pound hit an all-time low before rebalancing a little the market's now pricing cash rates at 5.8 nearly six percent i mean it's quite Remarkable. We've had some comments by some major well-known figures like Larry Summers and Ray Dalio saying that the UK is behaving like an emerging market, um, <laughs> which is something that, you know, you don't kind of normally hear. Um, but, no, you know, this right. kind of concept seems to be this trickle-down economy, you know, economics kind of theory. You know, we will stimulate our way out, out of this issue. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, trickle-down economic theory, you pointed out there, sort of does it make sense? Well, the short answer, I think that is no. We, yeah, we don't live in that sort of old style Keynesian world where threats to economic growth can simply be solved by the government spending more. If there's a clear, one clear lesson that we got from the COVID experience is that type of fiscal response, unfunded fiscal stimulus in a world where you've got high inflation, that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work, Alison, that you know better than me, actually, is global investors won't stand for it. They won't fund large blowouts of public debt, especially if that debt is designed to just temporarily support spending. There's no return to that debt. And the market correctly identifies the cost of that higher debt, that type of higher debt, being higher interest rates, and in the case of the UK or a country like Australia, a weaker currency. And mm. that's anathema for investors, and they'll pull the money out of a country if a government attempts this. And so whatever benefit to UK households and businesses of the government tax cuts embodied in those policies, that's going to be more than offset by higher interest rates and a weaker currency and higher inflation. Yeah, look, I would, I would agree with that. And it is really quite extraordinary, but even more extraordinary is what I heard overnight on the wires is that Germany is considering similar measures. Look, nothing nothing is confirmed there, but I kind of wonder when you've seen the UK uh, response and experience why they would consider those types of issues. I'll just stop you for a second there and at the risk of blowing out the take 10, Alison. One thing I'd say about Germany that is a little bit different to the UK and, for example, Australia is that their net foreign asset position is a surplus, a very strong surplus. So they do have savings as a, as a nation that enables, say, the government to, to have a slightly higher debt level than, than the UK and Australia, where we have a very True. high net foreign debt position. So that is a, a, a slight True. difference. It, so it, they it they may get away with it, may, I say, may get away with it, Alison. Mm -hmm. 
May indeed, but still talking five percent of GDP levels is is, mm. is is strong. But noting it is take ten, we better keep moving. So for our listeners, you are listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take Ten podcast, where Dr. Matthew Peter, our chief economist, is talking us through economic forecasts, which are shaping our investment outlook. I'd like to touch on market volatility, which we've sort of obviously has been extreme this week, particularly in the UK, but it really doesn't make it an easy job for central banks. Now, notwithstanding that, we have seen a raft of central banks come out this week and and move forward with their policies, which have been by and large to raise interest rates. um, And certainly some banks are raising by quite notable margins. Do you think the central banks are getting it right? Well, Alison, the the problem is that monetary policy works on the demand side of the economy, which is great if the shocks are coming from the demand side. The usual playbook that central banks have had to roll out over the last two decades is goes like this. If demand's too strong and inflation's too high, then we tighten policy, lift interest rates, slow down the demand and slow down the inflation. And Conversely, if demand's too weak, inflation's too low, we ease rates, raise demand and uh, raise inflation. But if, as what's happening now, the shocks are coming predominantly from the supply side, you know, for example, you know, supply falls, putting pressure on prices through, for example, uh, uh, supply chain bottlenecks that threaten the growth outlook, then raising interest rates to choke off inflation in that world reinforces the negative hit the economy that's already coming from the cause of that higher inflation, which is the supply shortage or the supply side shock. Now, central banks typically, as we know, have two KPIs. Pretty good, isn't it? You've only got two KPIs, but the bank, (laughs) central bank's only got two KPIs. One is price stability. In other words, keep inflation within their target. The second is full employment or keep growth up. Now, problem is they can't achieve both of those KPIs using monetary policy, as you've pointed out many times, Alison, when the hit to the economies from the supply side, they have a choice. Do we go for price stability? In other words, raise rates to get inflation down at the risk of losing their KPI of full employment, or do they keep interest rates low, hit the full employment, but potentially lose the um, KPI of price stability? Now, yeah. the, the central banks... What they were doing up until um, around about March this year was that they were opting for the full employment story. And the reason they were doing that, the full employment KPI, was that they were hoping that those supply shocks that were driving prices up would disappear quickly, basically, or they'd be temporary and inflation had come down so they didn't have to raise interest rates up and they'd hit their price stability and their full employment. But the problem is the central banks looked through those supply-driven shocks for too long. They placed too high a weight on the full employment. Now what they're doing is they're responding to the high inflation because they understand if the inflation kept going where it was heading anyway, they'd not only risk the inflation target, they wouldn't hit their full employment target because the inflation itself would drive the economies into recession. So they abandoned the full employment gone for stabilising inflation and the consequent, consequently raised interest rates. And now that path to a soft landing is becoming very narrow. In fact, it's narrowing down now to can they achieve a shallow recession? Yeah, the risk of policy error from my perspective is extraordinarily large. I mean, how, how high do they go? How fast do they go? How long do they stay there? And I think we are seeing that play out in markets and certainly, you know, with equities, 
as we talked, you know, a little while ago, we thought there was some risk to the downside, and we certainly, um, certainly, markets have been feeling that sort of concern, I believe, over the last few weeks as well. Yes, and you've made that call for some time now. The difficulty that central banks will have in being able to achieve those dual targets, and it's been a good call, Alison. You've been right on that point. Thank you, Matthew. Well, we had better wrap up. There's always a lot to talk about. I had a few other things to ask you on today, but quickly before I let you go, we've got the RBA coming up this week. What's what's your call for the RBA and their interest rate policy? Yeah, well, we're we're looking for a 50 basis point rate hike that outsized rate hike yet again by the RBA. The uh, events that we've just seen in, in Europe is adding fuel to that fire that the RBA has to get on with rate hikes. We've seen the Aussie dollar you know, now trading under 65 cents and with interest rates going up as everywhere else in the world, um, the Fed giving a 75 basis point rate hike. If the RBA starts to fall behind, we'll see even more pressure on the Australian dollar, putting even more pressure on domestic inflation. So we're looking for 50. Matthew, it's certainly not easy out there. I agree. There's a lot of challenges for the central banks. And we've talked about Europe, UK and Australia today. Perhaps next week we can talk about uh, what might happen in Japan. I think there's another fascinating case study there, which has a, a very different policy, but under similar pressures. So thank you, Matthew, for joining me this morning. And thank you to our listeners for taking 10. 